Please remain standing as we open God's Word together this morning. Philippians 4 is where we're going to end this series, a very powerful, a very joy-filled letter from the Apostle Paul. He's been encouraging unity, sharing with this church how to rejoice in the Lord always, and talking about some of those things that tend to undermine Uh, that joy in the Lord, a joy and peace in the Lord that is just manifest in, and that's the secret we're going to learn a little bit more about this morning. Uh, So Paul adds, really it's kind of a a postscript, put that P.S. at the end of the letter, it kind of seems what Paul is doing here, Um, thanking the church for their gift, but wanting them to know that his joy is not dependent upon their gift. So we'll conclude with verses 10 through 20 of chapter 4. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord God, it is your word that is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. We ask now that you would illumine our path, that you would illumine our hearts to this word. We thank you for it, Lord, the authority and power of your word. And you are working in this moment to accomplish your word. Make us attentive, we ask, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I wonder if you have ever borrowed something from the office on, uh, say, a more personal, permanent basis. Uh, Or maybe you borrowed something from a friend, and then you've had it now for so long that certainly you're thinking, well, he or she has forgotten that I have this, so it's kind of part of my stuff now. Um, It's really really fascinating to see how this acceptable stealing uh, comes into play. This sense of entitlement that is working its way into our lifestyle, into our culture. Uh, Career recruiting agency, uh, they asked 2,000 employees if they had ever taken anything from the office for their own personal use. And surprisingly, about 20% overall had taken things like pencils and, you know, a a scratch pad or tape roll or something like that. But it actually increased with increased salary and responsibility. So, so those who were, who were making 35000 or less, about 1 in 10 said that they actually took something from the office. 
Well, those making 75000 or more a year, it went up to about 25%. Uh, and now you're not talking pencils and paper, things like cell phones and computers. They just take them home. Um, I'm worth this, right? This should be coming to me anyway. The sense of entitlement that's growing among us. Um, and we think about the more that's handed to us or the more we get away with, the more we come to expect. It's just, just the nature of, of greed, of, of selfishness and sloth. And then you add to that a little splash of consumerism, maybe a dash of comparisonism. That's in the Brad Dictionary. I'll get you a copy sometime. Um, but then you have, this, you have this toxic mix of ingratitude which makes understanding what we've just read from the Apostle Paul very difficult uh, to take in and to process. The Apostle Paul, he, he could have felt entitled to the support that the church um, had given to him. I mean, he brought them the gospel. He had, he had served alongside them with tears. And so he might have expected that the church would, okay, finally come alongside and, and help him out in this way. But we learn from this closing section that he has not been waiting impatiently or felt entitled to this gift. In no way is he dependent upon their generosity and upon their kindness. He's thankful for it, incredibly thankful for this gift. But his dependence is somewhere else, in someone else. So whether they support him at this particular time or not, he's confident that his needs are going to be met. Uh, so he lets them in on a little secret. Something that he has learned over the years, something that you and I need to learn in the school of Christ. Uh, he thanks the church and then he feeds them a little bit more. And then he thanks them profusely and then he feeds them a little bit more. Uh, so we're going to look at the, the concern and care of the church and the secret that um, Paul unveils to them. But Paul loved this church. He's enjoyed sweet fellowship with them. Uh, and this fellowship takes on hands and feet. It's, it's expressed in a very tangible way. They're concerned. So they act on that concern in sending Paul this gift. Uh, Paul's been praying for this church. We know that from chapter 1. We'd like to believe that they were also praying for him. I think of, of prayer as being really the, the greatest gift. Many times it's the most sacrificial act we can make as we pray for one another. So if you tell someone that you're praying for them, pray for them. Pray for them in the moment if you need to so you don't forget. Sometimes we use that, I'll be praying for you sort of as a closing phrase to end the conversation. Pray for them. It's what they need the most. That's part of soul care, living life in the body of Christ. But prayer takes the opportunity uh, to provide loving care, put that into practice. So this is what the Philippian church uh, has done for Paul. Uh, God may very well be answering prayer through their actions, uh, through our sacrifice. As we give time and, and talents and financial resources. I mean, this church here had a history of helping Paul. But at this point, there had not been a clear opportunity to help him during this stay in Rome. So now their concern is revived. It bears fruit. Um, 
with this gift. And the apostle is grateful. He wants them to know that he's grateful. Uh, it was kind of you to share my trouble, he says in verse 14. Uh, if we are on the receiving end of the kindness and benevolence of God's people, maybe it's a few meals, maybe some work around the house, some extra funds during an unexpected time, we can be grateful for that. We can encourage the body of Christ through our gratitude. Doesn't mean we have to return in kind or somehow you know, to make payment for what we've received, but enjoying the kindness and the generosity of others. Let that fuel your own thanksgiving and desire to serve. You know, something you need to hear, and this won't be the last time I share this because I like to brag on you all, um, but I really have the greatest job in the world, if you consider it a job. Um, it's, it's a high calling, but it is not of greater value or somehow superior than uh, the work that God has equipped each and every one of you to do from day to day. Um, but your support of me and my family through your prayers, first and foremost, and giving that follows, it enables me to do that which I love the most. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. No way I would do this apart from the Spirit of God stirring in my own heart, being satisfied with, with nothing else. But I love the bride of Christ. You are the blood-bought lambs of the Lord Jesus. I love that. I am exceedingly grateful for each of you, for your kindness, for your obedience in caring for me and for our family. Paul's grateful. He wants a church to know that his needs and theirs are supplied by God. He's confident, dependent upon God's provision, and they can be too. It's verse 19. God will supply every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What are the riches of God? Think about that. What is the extent of God's wealth? That'll blow your mind. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, says the psalmist. The cattle on a thousand hills are His. His wealth, His ability to provide cannot be measured. It is absolute. It is eternal. It's equal to the very glory of God Himself. So God knows His people. He knows you, every one of you, personally. And He's the one in handling and distributing his resources. We can trust him for this. We can be uh, generous because of this uh, provision of the Lord. So what, what you and I need and what we think we need uh, don't often match up. Dare I say most of the time. Uh, our sense of entitlement is inflated. Our expectations, they're well, they're often skewed. I mean, we cry out to God for our needs, which end up landing in the wants category. Or a change of circumstances, or conditions maybe. And sometimes we view our, our holy and gracious God as this divine vending machine where we insert said prayers or insert a certain level of obedience that we've determined to sort of cash in. And then we expect our Heavenly Father to, to spit out the, the blessing, right? Uh, misses the goal of the gospel. 
and eternal riches that already belong to the believer. God does not promise to supply our every desire, every luxury. He supplies our need, what he sees that need to be in our lives um, as his adopted children. Because God is sure to meet the needs of his people, because he is governing the use of all of his resources Paul makes note here, he's not the only one to benefit from this gift. Trusting in the provision of God, who in Christ became poor, that we might enjoy the riches of his grace for eternity, that turns, that turns giving into an investment. And that's where Paul goes. I seek the fruit that increased to your account. They are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. We're not going to do this right now, but if you were to go back and read in Numbers 28, Numbers 29, you would see over and over that the food offering from the people to the Lord was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. I mean, we get this. This is that anthropomorphic language that we understand. I mean, what is it? The smell of lilacs in the spring, the... Fresh cut grass. Um, what else? Smell of the surf lapping up against the sand. Barbecue ribs in the smoker. There we go. Um, the aroma. This is, this is the delight of our God at the generosity of his people. So we're greatly blessed in giving. Paul shares in 1 Timothy 6. That we are we're to enjoy the good gifts of God and to be rich in good works, to be generous and, and ready to share, storing up treasure as a good foundation for the future. So this is not something profound. I'm not telling you something that, that you don't already know to be true. The question is, do we really believe it? The test of whether we believe it is if it goes into practice. Our trust is validated. Our hope is in the eternal riches of God, secured in Christ, is professed through our generosity and through our good work. Uh, so, so very practical here. Uh, we learn the importance of coming alongside and supporting those who are um, in that, that occupation or sharing the gospel, spreading the gospel regularly. Um, again, doesn't mean we're coming alongside every person or every cause that is available but those who are serving in such a way, they should not be bashful to, to ask the church to come alongside them in ministry. This is a privilege of the church. Uh, it's not a burden, as we all so often think it may be. Um, these are internal, eternal investment opportunities uh, that we have as a body in Christ, pleasing to the Lord. So what is Paul's secret here? He's thankful, but he doesn't need the gift to be truly satisfied. In fact, he seems to be happier for the church and the benefit that they are receiving than he is for himself. Think, well, what, what's going on here? What's up with this? The answer is in verses 11 through 13. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That's the secret. And Paul knows the extremes of experience. Plenty, hunger. Abundance, need. 
And you can check out 2 Corinthians 11, 23, to the end of the chapter, to learn of all the different situations that Paul had encountered, and yet he was content. And this language that he uses here would actually sound a lot like the Stoic philosophy of the time. They they would have been very happy with what Paul said here. Be content. Uh, Find that inner peace in the midst of change. Um, Which doesn't sound so bad on the surface. Um, But the Stoic sought that peace, that that inner peace could come through, uh, through self. Sort of living the life of the mind, whatever was happening to the body. You could achieve this contentment. Uh, but Paul's secret is, is different. Um, all those situations that Paul mentions, the situation he finds himself now as he's writing, he actually boasts in his ability, inability to endure them. He boasts in his weakness. We read about this a little earlier. 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 12. Because boasting in his weakness, it then magnifies the strength of God. He cannot endure, he cannot find contentment in himself or his situations. His contentment is complete dependence upon God. It's in weakness, it's in dependence upon Jesus that our real strength is found. I like how the NIV, what they do with verse 13 there. I can do all this through him who strengthens me. What's the this? The plenty, the hunger, the abundance, the need. The apostle is content in any of those situations. Verse 13 is an exclamation on contentment. Paul's not boasting that he can do certain things or even whatever he puts his mind to because God is on his side. His boasting is in the strength of the Lord at all times. I really appreciate what Elizabeth Elliot, after facing so much pain in her own life, She said, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Um, That is the point of Paul's closing words that we've read. We'll spend the rest of our lives trying to, to work that in deep. So let me say it again. The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Christ is sufficient for the moment, for the day, for the year, for the lifetime. His strength abounds. To us who believe. So this inward working, the strengthening of the Spirit, it often comes through trials. Trials that God brings us through. Puritan pastor Jeremiah Burroughs, he shares a very helpful illustration on understanding this inward work, the infusing of strength that we're reading here in verse 13 using by the Spirit of God. He likens this to a person who's, um, who is warmed by the clothes that they're wearing. And so when, when trials come, it's like putting on a, a set of cold clothes and there's that shock factor uh, that comes with putting the clothes on. But after a while, the, the, the body starts to warm the clothes. So when that affliction, that trial comes, after, after a while, slowly, uh, the believer who is strengthened by the grace of God, begins to to warm up to that situation, that circumstance, understanding it more. The affliction becomes more bearable. So through trial, learning to trust, the more God takes us through that, we often warm up faster when faced with affliction. 
Uh, let's remember that Paul had to learn all of this. Verse 12, 11 and 12. Didn't come overnight. It takes time uh, under the sanctifying hand of God to, to warm up. He'll teach us to trust on His provision. Be content in Him. You know, this is very difficult for us to grasp at any time, um, but particularly living at this time and in this place. Um, we want to be content. We've been made to be content. Uh, we grasp for it. We fight for it. And yet it seems just, just out of reach. It eludes us. Um, Daniel Borston, he makes this observation about Americans in his book called The Image. We expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect compact cars which are spacious. Luxurious cars which are economical. We expect to be rich and charitable. Powerful and merciful. Active and reflective. Kind and competitive. We expect to eat and stay thin. To be constantly on the move and ever more neighborly. To go to a church of our choice and yet feel its guiding power over us to revere God and to be God. Never have a people been more the masters of their environment, yet never has a people felt more deceived and disappointed. For never has a people expected so much more than the world can offer. Can we ever be content with expectations like that? True contentment cannot be found in our circumstances or the stuff of this world. Which makes C.S. Lewis's point all the more convincing. The presence of an unsatisfied longing in this world would seem to indicate that we were created to be satisfied by something from another world. Paul knows the secret. He shares with the church what is truly satisfying. Rather, who is truly satisfying? The Lord God is, is perfectly content in Himself. Jesus, the God-man, the most content being who ever existed, He trusted completely in His Father, submitting His will entirely to His Father, every circumstance. Now Paul has learned to find uh, his pleasure and satisfaction in Christ. Because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The greatest work has already been done. The greatest gift has already been given. He's not going to forsake us in lesser things if he's done that. So God's mercy, God's mercy drives away discontentment. As we're assured of God's love and favor in Christ. So do you have this assurance? Where are you in that school of contentment? You know, I mentioned this at the start of the series, that all of these promises, the truths that Paul shares in this letter, only come to those who are in Christ. That's chapter 1, verse 1. And so I want to end the series in the same way. You must be in Christ. You must know your need of forgiveness. Knowing your absolute discontentment apart from Him, to enjoy this strength in any and every situation. So please don't leave this morning if you have not submitted your life to Christ and you're trying to find contentment out those doors somewhere. The secret 
Well, the secret isn't a secret to you anymore. You've heard. Look to Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Know the quiet, inward spirit of contentment. Um, I want to close this morning with a bit of a contrast. Um, There's uh, some research done at Boston College. A group of folks whose uh, fortunes exceeded $25 million. And uh, you probably aren't surprised by this by now, but they weren't very satisfied. In fact, this amount of wealth had caused great anxiety and pain in their relationships, in their work environment. And uh, they they didn't believe that they actually uh, were financially secure. And so when asked, well, what would that take? And on average, they said, well, one quarter more wealth than what I currently have. And then I read about a gentleman named Bill. Bill worked for a heating and cooling company in New Jersey. He decided to retire at the age of 97. And uh, that was for three years. And then he went back to work. And so the guys at the office, they pulled out the, the birthday cake. They threw a 100th birthday party for him. And his boss had a list of jobs saying, here you go, Bill, at 100 years old. He said, my wife, my work, my wife, my family is what makes me happy. You know, contrast those two. I mean, what a, what a difference in those discontent with masses uh, of wealth to try and keep track of. You know, I could hear echoes of Ecclesiastes. What I have seen to be good and, feed, and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Working heartily, cheerfully unto the Lord, trusting in the Lord's provision, giving generously. All of this is powerful fuel for gratitude and for contentment. So Paul expresses this, uh, his love for the church, um, shows them that, that the Lord is all sufficient, that contentment does not consist in, uh, in getting the conditions that we desire, but in God fashioning our hearts to the conditions that we're in. Contentment is the abiding amen of our joy, says uh, Pastor Eric Raymond. It speaks in present tense. I am tasting, I am seeing that the Lord is good. We can only be truly content in the goodness and grace of the Lord Jesus. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that You would work this truth into our hearts. Lord, you've made us for contentment. You've made us for contentment in you and you alone. Lord, we ask your help in this, that you would deepen our love for the Lord Jesus, that we would find true satisfaction and hope in the grace that you have shown to us. The greatest work has been done. You've given us the greatest gift. Lord, if you have come to our rescue and saved us for eternity in your presence, how will you not also provide for our daily needs? Help us to trust you more in this hour, in this day, and for the rest of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.